IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On the show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums, and we hash out trends. In this episode we talk about the return of 2000's indie folk, more fallout from Pitchfork.com, and the most heartbreaking band breakups. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host. He loves the new Ice Spice song about farting, Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? Yeah, I'd hate to be a fart splainer here, but it's not a song actually about farting. See, the fart, not to get too goop on your Grinch about it, but like the fart is a metaphor here, Stephen. Uh, specifically, yes. a metaphor taken from a meme featuring Mario smoking a joint. Like, I just love how... Our biggest female rappers, uh, our biggest female pop rappers, I guess, like Ice Spice and Doja Cat are basically like posters. Like posters first, rappers second. It's like Azealia Banks is their Rock Kim or KRS-One. So, for those who don't know, <laughs> uh, the rapper Ice Spice has a new song out called Think You the Shit, and then the word fart is in parentheses. So, Think You the Shit, Fart. And uh, this song is already a top 40 hit. Uh, I don't know if we should just expect this to enter the top 10, the top 5, maybe even the top spot. Um, I'm going to tread lightly here because I don't want to be one of those like boomer Bill Maher type scolds who like looks at the pop charts and says, oh my god, I can't believe this song is a hit. I'm really just here to make sure that our listeners know that there's a song... (laughs) called think you the shit fart and yeah i know it's a metaphor and the metaphor i as i follow it is that a fart in relation to shit is the fart is like a poser and like the shit is like the real deal so like if you're farting you're just posturing but if you're actually on the pot and you're following through then that makes you a real person. Am I am I breaking down the metaphor correctly here? Well, first off, you're correct in that the parenthetical is the best part of it. It's titled like a Deftone song, um, but yeah. Otherwise, it, I, I, well, I didn't actually I, I didn't actually say that yet. Uh, I said that in the outline that the thing about this song title that I love is you know she could have put fart in the proper title, but. Instead of that, she put it in parentheses after the proper title. And I actually think that that is a really nice grace note. <laughs> because I, I just think that putting fart in parentheses is uh, is funnier. I, I There's just something about the parentheses that's more comedic to me. So I appreciate that grace note. And as far as the metaphor goes, I mean, we are saying in this song that farting is a form of posturing... That should be looked down upon, whereas taking, uh, let's just say defecation, that is like the real admirable activity. Is that a proper way to read this song? Yeah, if I, if I was writing for Slate.com or whatever, I would say that like you know, every generation gets the hollow back girl they deserve or something like that. If I wanted to get like real metaphor, you know, this is a very, this is a very like 2005 blocks by a trench and analysis of think you the shit fart uh, action. Blogging is back. But let me ask you this. Would it be funnier or like more trenchant if the song was called fart parenthetical think you the shit? I don't think so. Hmm. Um, I mean, this is the word fart in a musical context. I think, uh, I mean, it's not a very like nice sounding word to hear in a song. Like if you're just thinking about lyrics as part of the music and, and words are there because of how they sound more than what they mean. I think fart, you know, it doesn't really, it, it feels like a, like a speed bump in a song, Mm -hmm. you know, that's gonna, it's like the record scratch, (laughs) part of a song you know so uh i guess ice spice here could be uh you could admire her for taking on this difficult challenge of can i even have a hit if i put like fart in the song (laughs) like is this you know this is like a testament to her popularity i think that even if you put the word fart in a song ice spice is gonna have a top 40 hit 
Yeah, I think that like fart is like one of those words that just does not sing particularly well. The only accept the only the only acceptable use of that word is eve fart low. Otherwise, it's uh, yeah. otherwise it's really tough to make it work. But even if it isn't in the top ten, I get the feeling that like Ice Spice and her fans and just the way the, the way things are is that she'll just probably put out a call on Twitter to like kind of juice the charts and like have everyone like you know request the song or whatever so that like we can kind of like astroturf it as a number one hit like this stuff does happen like you can get like indie bands saying hey buy our iTunes song on iTunes for 99 cents and they'll be like in the top 10 of iTunes because nobody uses it but I think something like this is happening I, I, either way I think pop music is in a is in a pretty good place in 2024 uh, if something this extremely weird is uh is a bona fide pop hit. I will say too sincerely that I like the idea of a genuinely stupid pop song becoming successful versus the very self-serious we're talking about trauma mm. type pop song that I feel like has been very common lately. Uh you know we're in that era where uh you know it feels like we're t- you know and not to minimize these issues they are important but I Swinging the pendulum back to just pure trash, <laughs> I think it could be a positive development. So, Ice Spice, thank you. I, I just think about so many times in, like, school, like, when someone farted or shit their pants. That was traumatic, too. Like, what if it was, like, sh- think you the shit fart about a time someone pooped their pants in first grade and it's really about trauma? I think that would be well, an interesting angle, too. I believe that's known as sharding. Ah. Not, so it's not <laughs> farting. So maybe there needs to be a sharding trauma song. Um, maybe we should pivot out of this because people might be eating their breakfast while listening to IndieCast. And to those people, I apologize. Um, let's do a quick sports cast here. We have the Super Bowl coming up uh, this weekend. And uh, I feel like the world is waiting for our Super Bowl picks. At least the world that listens to Indie Rock podcasts to get their sports news. Uh, so who are you picking? Niners or Chiefs this weekend? Well, I mean, so far in the playoffs, I've went I've predicted the outcome that I would find most unpleasant personally and I guess it hasn't steered me wrong so far so I'm gonna like actually backtrack on what I said last week and say that the Chiefs are going to win and it is in 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 one of those like really annoying ways that the Chiefs win where the score is like 17 to 13 but somehow Travis Kelsey has like 12 catches on 150 yards and some waiver wire receiver you've never heard of like gets a like a like a touchdown on like a, a an option pitch, um, yeah. I, I I've and I know we're gonna talk a little bit about the Taylor album announcement, but like that alone has shifted the pendulum to me thinking the Chiefs are gonna win. Also, uh, I predict the commercials are gonna be absolutely fucking miserable. I hear there are two already. There are like two commercials. Uh, inspired by Flashdance, like Dante's Peak and uh, what that other volcano movie. Like, we're getting that kind of deal going on. Mm, yeah, I mean, if I'm following you, you think that the Chiefs winning is the less desirable outcome, and that's why you're going with the Chiefs? I'm speaking I'm, I'm speaking in the immediate sense, because, like, I'm just, you know, last week I was annoyed by, like, the Taylor Swift, like, conservative posters. Now I'm more annoyed by the Taylor Swift album announcement, so... I'm I'm kind of firing from the hip here. It could change by Saturday. See, I am I'm rooting for the Chiefs and I am picking the Chiefs. I think that they're going to win and I want them to win and it has more to do with just my hatred of the 49ers. And look, I know Sportscast has been rough riding lately for <laughs> our San Francisco listeners and I apologize. We love San Francisco as a city. Um and look, you should take my hatred of your football team as a compliment because the Niners are like just all-time Packer killers, uh, especially in the playoffs. I mean, I'm looking at like a quarter century of you guys just ruining my life in January (laughs) and February. I mean, go back to 98, you got the Terrell Owens catch against, uh, it's the last game, Mike Holmgren coached for the Packers. You ended the Holmgren era with just like this last second touchdown, you got Colin Kaepernick coming into Lambeau and you know putting up like 200 yards rushing or whatever. Uh, you've got Jimmy Garoppolo of all people coming into <laughs> Lambeau and beating us, uh, and then you got the game this year. Um, so yeah, you, you you've just tortured me for 
you know, more than half my life. That's why I hate your team. It's a compliment, you know, so so please take it as a compliment. Um, but yeah, I just think the Niners have looked super shaky the last uh, two games. Uh, Packers should have beaten them, and the Lions should have beaten them. I don't trust your defense, and I don't trust Brock Smallhands Purdy. I'm sorry. I think the Cinderella story ends against Patrick Mahomes. Um, the only thing I think is going against the Chiefs is karma. And this is where I want to talk about Taylor Swift a little <laughs> bit, because... I was listening to The Town, uh, it's a Ringer podcast, one of my favorite podcasts. Uh, it's about the entertainment business, and the uh, host, Matthew Bellany, was talking this week on the show about how he went to the Grammys. He was in the room when Taylor Swift announced her new album, The Tortured Poets Department. And he said in the room that the reaction was negative, that people in the audience, they were chattering amongst themselves, they felt like, really Taylor Swift like you have to use this show as a platform to announce your next record when you're the person who needs this platform the least like even by Taylor Swift standards it seemed very cold and calculating and a way that I think turned a lot of people off in the music business it seems um I do think that this record which again is called the tortured poets department which, by the way, you're putting out this record after winning Album of the Year at the Grammys for the fourth time, which nobody's ever done. You top Stevie Wonder and Frank Sinatra and Paul Simon, and now you're calling yourself a tortured poet. I just think that the situation is ripe, finally, for at least some kind of Taylor Swift backlash this year. I think that she has provided the grist for people who have maybe been waiting for a while to vent about Taylor Swift, but they didn't really have an opening, I think this record's going to be the opening. Now, it may be great, and I'll be wrong, but I don't know. I, I think that there are storm clouds brewing here. I think that gravity exists, even for pop stars. There's always some sort of course correction eventually. Michael Jackson had it. Bruce Springsteen in the Born in the USA era, which, by the way, I have a book about that coming out in May. There was a backlash against him. You can only get so big before people start to get sick of you. And I feel like we're there with Taylor Swift. And maybe the karma from that somehow throws the Chiefs out of whack and then the Niners win the game. I, 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 people have asked, you know, is this where the backlash happens with Taylor Swift? And I do think that the vibe around this announcement is very different than that of folklore or midnights um i do get like a sense of exhaustion i mean at least amongst like the people i talk about with music online the taylor swift fans i know in real life are just like super stoked but i i think what's interesting about the concept of a taylor swift backlash is that we've experienced it in the not too distant past i mean i think reputation or lover was seen as like if we're thinking about the context of, um, you know, other big giant pop artists, maybe like Madonna circa erotica, where, you know, they're still famous, but they're not like quite as A-list as they used to be. But they, you know, they kind of wriggled their way out of that jam. What I think is funny about the album title, it's like, I do think that, I don't know, Taylor Swift is probably trying to be kind of tongue in cheek in a way that doesn't really mesh with every other thing they do. I just think it's funny that like after trying to do like a Nash, the national sort of thing and now moving on to Alana Del Rey and or Father John Misty thing, whether she's kind of slowly drip running the 2010s of indie and then three years later she's going to kind of make her Alex G album or like all the songs are named like Leech, Jamie, Pencil, and it's all like, uh, you know, altered acoustics and like voice um, and like voice manipulation I don't think there's going to be a significant backlash to this. Like maybe I think critics might feel more emboldened to talk their shit, but I still think we're going to get like Rob Sheffield being the David Frick to her U2. This might get four and a half stars. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, she's going to get positive press, but I don't know. I, I just feel like... The vibe is shifting. Um, yeah, I, I really feel like there's going to be... And look, she's still going to be hugely popular. I'm not saying, like, oh, people are going to, like, not buy her records or go to her shows anymore. She's still going to be the biggest star in the world. I just think that, at least in the media, you're going to see more griping about her than you did 
2023, which really isn't saying much because really in 2023, you saw one of the all-time just media genuflecting at the feet of a pop star type years. I mean, it was way over the top. So if we even get like a little bit of pushback in 2024, that would be an amazing development. Um, let's do a quick uh, fantasy draft update here. Uh, you have a new Brittany Howard album out today, uh, which is doing extremely well, I believe. Mm-hmm. What's that album called? Uh, great question. <laughs> this is your squad. What man. now? It's called team. What Now. <laughs> okay, but like this record's doing really well, right? On yeah. It, it, last I checked, it had a ninety-one. Um, which wow. Is, yeah. Wow. Which is, I mean, it's like I expected this album to do well, but as we talked about last week, it, it, it its release date got kind of pushed back with like out much notice, but. Uh, I'm expecting it to hold in the high 80s when it's all said and done. I mean, that was wow, like that's strong. Yeah, that I, I I was very confident about this pick. Like, but it, this is overperforming, right? Like, did you think it would hit the 90s? Maybe at the beginning, but like, I think it's wow. gonna I think it's gonna level out in the high 80s. Like, that was my that was my expectation, and you know, like once you know, maybe like a Pitchfork 8.0 no best new music hits or whatever, it'll like dial back down a bit, but. I think that, yeah, this was a strong pick. Um, you know, I'm not expecting it to hold at 91, but, uh, yeah, it's like this is, I expect at least one or two Grammy nominations in 2025 for this one. Yeah, but that doesn't factor in for us. So just so we know, <laughs> Grammys don't matter. It's just all Metacritic score. Um I'm intrigued by your jazz pick because uh, VJ Iyer, this record came out a few weeks ago. I did see Pitchfork reviewed it. This week, it's got an 8.1. I've listened to this record. It's a very lovely record. Uh, I enjoyed it. I'm going to be the rock critic who's listening to the crossover jazz record and, <laughs> and liking it. I'll, I'll be that cliche here, but I do like the record. Um, but it's still not on Metacritic. I mean, do you want to hold on to this or do you want to pick something else? I feel like we could give it one more week, but I also owe you because of the Faye Webster exception uh, that many in the IndieCast community thought was, uh, was questionable. Uh, you're wrong, but I understand you're, 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 you're questioning the decision, but anyway, do you want to pick something now or do you want to wait a week? I'm going to say wait a week because you know, they're, 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 uh, when you go on like Metacritic, like one or two weeks after an album's release date, you'll like, you'll like look at things like, I don't remember that one coming out. So it, I, I looked on album of the year, which does unweighted scores and there are four reviews of it. Um, all of which are very positive, but let's give it another week. And if that, you know, if, if not, then, you know, maybe we can get a little subs or maybe I'll give you a list of three and you can pick the one that you want me to have. Well, we'll see. I mean, again, the Faye Webster thing, uh, you know, I, I owe a favor. So I, I'll follow your lead on that. I do think that the only reason it's not on Metacritic is that whoever is the Metacritic minion that controls that, they just haven't gotten around to VJ Iyer yet. Once that gets on there, I think that will be a strong performer that's like in the mid-80s. So I, I, I think it's wise to you know, wait and see because I think that is a strong performer. One thing I'm a little concerned about, this is talk about my team here. Um, I've got Mannequin Pussy coming out in a few weeks. That comes out on May, on March 1st, I believe. And there was like a mini controversy this week online because they they put out a new music video. And by the way, Mannequin Pussy is a rock band from Philadelphia, a really good band. They're on Epitaph Records. This new record coming out, it's their first in five years. And I've heard it. I think it's a really good record. I think the singles have been really strong. But uh, there was a mini controversy this week because they put out a new music video for the song Nothing Else. And I'm a little confused by what went on with this, but like in the press release, they said that it was AI assisted in the creation of the visuals. And if you watch the video, it's this kind of weird animation going on. Um, I don't really love the video, to be honest. I mean, I like the song a lot, but the video to me is like visually... Not very appealing, but apparently AI was used in some capacity to create these images, and there was blowback online about this, as there is about all things involving AI. And I think that the idea is that, you know, with AI, you're basically taking images from the past and recombobulating them. And I think there's a 
legitimate concern about how this affects human artists. And, you know, if you're just going to recycle images from the past, are you putting a human artist who could have worked on this out of work? It's my understanding that a human artist did work on this video. So I don't really know, like, how AI came into effect. So to be totally honest, I'm like, I'm like a little flummoxed, if I can use the word flummoxed here, by this controversy. I, I get the principle of it, but I also don't really know exactly what went on here. So anyway, I'm a little concerned that this is going to affect my fantasy team. Like, I don't really care about humankind being destroyed by AI. <laughs> I just care about my fantasy team here. Because I feel like the people most likely to be to be upset about a mannequin pussy music video are also the people most likely to review this record. And are they going to like dock this record half a point <laughs> or whatever because they're mad about this video? So I, you know, again, I'm just a little worried about my team getting sandbagged here. You know, let's 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 focus on the real issues here. I, 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 if I were you, I wouldn't be. I think the people who are mad about this video, and by the way. Great record. They the song uh, is my favorite on the album. It reminds me of Smashing Pumpkins, Apples and Oranges, which you know that's like mm. very high praise. But you know the sort of people who are mad about this, which is you know your typical anytime like a band has used DIY in their like narrative and like they hire somebody else to do something. It's like oh ho ho, ho like what's going on here. Um, I think AI, AI was like utilized as like kind of an intentional ugliness, like, you know, like if it was an Aphex twin video and, um, yeah, it's just like, to me, it, it's uh, people see AI and they automatically like jump to, oh my God, this is going to like, you know, take a job away from, you know, somebody who probably they would hire in their friend group or whatever, but like human hands went into it. I think it was just misinterpreted off the rip. And if we're going to talk about like unforced errors that completely uh, sandbag an album's rollout, if like, you know, on a scale of like one to power bottom with like Roshan Murphy being like a nine, this is like a two tops. I can't imagine like anyone reviewing the album, taking that into consideration because it's AI. It's not necessarily a controversy surrounding any of the actions of the band itself. You know, like I think, you know, like what happened with Soul Glow once their bassist got like left the band due to accusations. That album did just fine. So I think that's the best yeah. comparison. You're, you're, I would not worry about this at all, especially since people are excited about this album. If I lose by like two points in the fantasy draft, I'm going to blame this. Okay. So I'm just saying that right now. I'm going to say I'm blaming the AI <laughs> music controversy, music video controversy. If I even remember it by that time, which I probably won't, but I, I'll I'll be looking for excuses. Um, Zay Flowers fumbling on like the one yard line type yeah. affair. Uh, this is this is like the bad officiating. This is like you know, you know, Tony being in the neutral zone uh, against the Bills and they're you know, retracting the uh, touchdown Chiefs Bills game. Um, let's talk about two thousands indie folk. Fuck yeah, because. <laughs> It's having a moment this week. We had uh, announcements, which I think were on the same day. Was it the same day? I think or, it was a day apart. It was a day apart. Uh, first announcement was that the Sembrists are back with their first song in six years. It's called Burial Ground. It's actually a, good, a, a nice song. I enjoyed the song. It, it, it doesn't really sound like the stereotypical December song you have in your head. It sounds like a 60s, like... Mersey beat type song, you know, like a one of the British invasion bands writing like a jangly mid tempo type song. Uh, so I like that. And then right around the same time this week, Iron and Wine, they're back with a new album, Light Verse. It's their first record in seven years. So that's coming out later this year. So I figured this is a good opportunity to talk a little bit about 2000s indie folk. Which I like I said, it seems to be having a moment. And I also was wondering, like, yay or nay? Let's yay or nay these bands. I don't think we've talked about either band ever. We wouldn't have had an excuse. They haven't had new music <laughs> in, you know, since the show started. So Decemberus, let's talk about them first. Yay or nay on Decemberus, Ian. Yeah, it's so funny how like these bands like are seen as like two thousands indie folk when back in like two thousand two or four, they were like very different bands. One's like theatrical and like 
twee, whereas Iron and Wine is like somebody who's got the huge beard and like raw and earthy. But I get how they're like kind of seen as the same thing. Decemberist, um, you mentioned how it was like kind of 60s uh, British folk pop. Uh, that's kind of the direction they've been going in for the past 10 or some odd years. They just don't release albums as often, so it's kind of easy to forget. Me, they're like a one album only band for me. Uh, I love the Crane Wife. Do not listen to anything else. I just associate them so much with Portlandia and that kind of era. By the way, we have friends who's live in Portland and their daughter goes to like one of those outdoor uh, schools. And one of the a band member of the Decemberists is like on the school music department, which I think is just so extremely Portland. Um, yeah, Decemberists, I would say like... At this, in 2005, or, well, no, in 2007, I would have said nay, because they were so much, um, you know, more a part of the narrative. But at this point, a band who's like that, has that distinct of a sensibility, and they've done it for so long, even if it's not one that I particularly care for. Like, I don't want to totally listen to their music, but I kind of respect what they do. So, yeah, yak, I think on the Decemberists. Okay, I'm going to go straight yay on the Decemberists. Uh, even though I haven't listened to them in a really long time, probably 10 years. Uh, but I have fond memories of several of their records. I actually like Castaways and Cutouts probably the most. Uh, but I think The King is Dead, which is like their sixth record, came out in 2011. I think that's like a pretty strong record. Might have been 2010. Like Peter Buck plays on that record, and it sounds very R.E.M.-ish. Uh, so I like that side of what they do. I, I feel like in the 2000s, the Decemberists were sort of like the band that people who didn't like indie rock would make fun of. Mm -hmm. And they would say, oh, every indie rock band's like the Decemberists. And they were an easy target. And like you, that makes me want to defend them because I think that <laughs> was unfair. I th actually think Colin Malloy is a good songwriter. And they're actually like a really good live band. Too, and that was like a big part of what they did. I just want to tell a quick story about one of the most controversial incidents for me when I was the music editor of the AV Club. There was a Decemberist live album that came out. I think it was 2011, I, I or maybe it was 2012. I don't remember the name of it. But back in those days, I don't think people really do this anymore, but publicists would send out press releases with the track lists of albums and websites would do posts with the track list. Like we have the track list of the new animal collective record or whatever. And I hated that. I always thought like, this is the most phony baloney <laughs> news ever, you know, like who cares what the track list is? Like that's not news, especially if you haven't heard the record, like who cares what this song that I've never heard is called and that it's the fifth track on the record. Anyway, my editor wanted me to do a newswire item on this new live Decemberist album. And I argued with him over email for three hours about it. <laughs> the most pointless argument ever. <laughs> and I ended up writing the news brief anyway. Because, of course, he's my boss. I had to do it. And then when I had my performance review several months later, this was brought up. And it was like a big black mark on me. And I ended up leaving the AV Club six months later. So the Decemberists kind of brought me down in a way in one of my jobs. Um, but I'm still going to yay them anyway. Um, Iron and Wine, nay or yay for you? A, a, a weird blind spot for me. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sort of a, like, look. I mean, like every other person who's now like 40-something indie male uh, I put Naked As We Came on a mix for a girlfriend in 2005. It also, that one also had Block Party's Blue Light and Star's Ageless Beauty on there. Like, I was extremely indie basic back then. Um, but, you know, I don't recall the first two albums, the ones that were most critically acclaimed. I really liked The Shepherd's Dog, but after that, they kind of one in the same in the December, like as a Decemberist, where they kind of, they, they, they veer more towards like a, more broad sort of folk pop idea, not as distinct as it used to be. Um, I'll like check in every now and again, but don't really care too much. That being said, I want to say nay for the soul, for like the sheer fact of their uh, such great heights cover. Oh, yeah. I fucking 
hate that. I don't really like, I like the Postal Service, such great heights. I don't really like that song that much. The cover is like, if you want to, if you want to like have the bullseye of taking aim at Garden State indie culture, like that would be it. Like, yeah. I hate that song so fucking much. But otherwise, Iron Wine, uh, take, putting that aside, I'm like generally yay. Yeah, I'm going to go straight nay on Iron and Wine. And the thing I said about the Decemberists, how they were treated as a punching bag for people that wanted to complain about this kind of bookish, uh, uptight, folky type indie music that was popular in the 2000s. I think they should have been complaining about the Such Great Heights cover by Iron and Wine. I, I agree with you 100%. Like, I hate that cover. I actually like this original song. Uh, on the postal service record um but yeah i don't know i i i I tried with iron and wine a bunch of times and it just bored me to tears just could not get into it he did a record with calexico uh that i kind of like that's the most that's the closest i came to getting into iron and wine but uh it's got to be a no for me dog on iron (laughs) and wine Uh, i'm not in on them at all um but yeah i don't know it it's interesting with this kind of music because we talked about this uh, a couple episodes ago with Noah Khan, that there's this kind of music that people will say sometimes, oh, it's having a comeback, when in reality, I think this music always stays popular. It's just maybe not talked about all the time. I think there's always an audience for this kind of music. And Noah Khan's a little bit different. That's like the Mumford and Sons side, which you're getting more into like 2010s era. That's more of the like boot stomp, like. Yahay type, yeah, yeah, that kind of stuff. Whereas Decemberus and uh, Iron and Wine, and I don't know if we want to put Fleet Foxes in there, or you could put Bonnie Bear in there, at least like the first record. It's a little mellower, I think, and uh, it doesn't have quite the same, I think, feel like the the Mumford thing. I actually think is better in smaller doses, but more annoying in large doses. Right. It's like way more formulaic, I think. But if you get if you hear like one song in a trailer, like a movie trailer, there is something sort of Pavlovian about that kind of sound that it, it just gets it, you know, your heart starts to soar and it's the feel good hit of the summer or whatever. Um but yeah, I don't know. I feel like this kind of music and I'm sh- both of these bands are going on the road. I'm sure they'll do very well on the road. Uh, the 48-year-old indie <laughs> fan community. They're, they're calling the babysitter right now, and they're saying, are you free this summer? We're going to like book this several months in advance. Uh, it's going to be a big deal. Yeah, I think that... Uh, I, I remember the, uh, Iron, when the Iron and Wine Andrew Bird uh, co-tour, and that was mm. like... Yeah, that was like, a, that was like a big moment for like 46-year-old uh, uh, indie, indie former Pitchfork readers who, like, really love the Put a Bird on It sketch from Portlandia. I mean, like, the, the good... Oh, so that was, wait, that was recent? That was a recent tour? A couple years ago, I think, you know. Okay. Um, but, yeah, I mean, this... Mu- I, don't, I don't, like, I, I think it's more coincidental that these two bands came back. I don't see, like, a real... Uh, you know, culture shifts. I do think it would be funny if this was the kind of music that ended up unseating the uh, extended Punisher era of indie rock. Like, this is the stuff that come back that's like super twee and nerdy and like, you know, like Pitchfork dies and all of a sudden old Pitchfork comes back. I think that would be kind of the most hilarious outcome. So therefore, that's what I'm rooting for, but I don't think it's going to happen. I think it would just be the same audience and a couple of people on Twitter who can like convince some publication to let them like cook on the return of, I don't know, poetic indie folk. But otherwise I, I don't, so many with TikTok, so many trends can happen simultaneously. You can't say that there's a real zeitgeist shift. I don't know. Zach Bryan posted a Bonnie Vare cover this week. Could be in the air. We'll see what happens. Yeah, Bonnie Vare was on Kanye albums. I, I, I don't see a uh, Colin Malloy lacing beats for like Twista or whatever. All right, well, before we get to the mailbag, because we really need to do a mailbag this week, we've had like these (laughs) two emails that we've booted several times, and we may only get to one, but uh, we have to get to one because I previewed it in our intro here. But um, I did want to talk to you quick about the story that was published this week on Semaphore about Pitchfork. 
and the behind-the-scenes intrigue of Condé Nast's decision to fold Pitchfork into GQ. I've been saying for a few weeks that I've been waiting for the Maxwell Tanny story about Pitchfork. Maxwell Tanny is a reporter for Semaphore. He used to work uh, for the Daily Beast, and he covers the media. And I was, I could feel it in my bones. I'm like, Tanny's on this. Tanny's on the phones. <laughs> He's working the email. He's getting some anonymous sources together to talk about what happened at Pitchfork. And he finally uh, delivered the story this week. And the story itself, I mean, it's not all that surprising. I mean, I think Tanny basically confirmed what we all assumed, which was that Condé Nast never really understood what Pitchfork was, didn't didn't appreciate it. They looked at it as a site that wasn't making enough money, even though uh, they uh, it, it's one of the most well-trafficked sites, apparently, in the Condé Nast uh, stable. Um, but there's one paragraph in this story that I wanted to uh, talk to you about. Uh, and it's the paragraph where it's talking about uh, the Pitchfork Festivals. And how some at Condé Nast were complaining that they weren't luxury enough. <laughs> Which is very funny <laughs> to me. It's like, oh yeah, the backstage, you're serving ice cream. Why not, you know, caviar? And, you know, we'll get, uh, you know, we'll get Alec Baldwin to hang out with, uh, you know, Lorne Michaels backstage. It'll be great. We'll get all the New York people at uh, Pitchfork. Um, but then there's a line here where, let's see, where is it? Um... Okay, so this is like a, apparently a senior vice president in charge of events at Condé Nast was looking at the festival in Chicago, and I'm reading here. He made the outlandish suggestion that Pitchfork could juice ticket sales by reuniting Oasis or the White Stripes. Now, a lot of people screenshotted this paragraph and they're like, what a buffoon this person is. And this person clearly is a buffoon. Uh, But... Ian, is is this person also awesome? Yeah, as well. Because uh, look, I, I'm not defending Condé Nast in any way, shape, or form, and I don't think that they would have been able to actually reunite Oasis or the White Stripes. I'm just saying that if I worked at Condé Nast, I might have been this person. I might have been like, "Hey guys, let's aim big here." You know, maybe instead of uh, booking, I don't know, uh, the 1975, let's get Oasis back together, man. That'll be awesome. So, I don't know. I'm just asking the question here. Probably a buffoon, but is he actually a genius? I, I love how, and, and I think the story as a whole, like, there, I think there is this need for something a little more explosive and, you know, dishy about how this all went down. But this one more or less confirms that, uh, A, Pitchfork is nowhere near as, like, conspiratorial or calculated as people want to think they are, and that Condé Nast is every bit as like true C-suite media stereotypes. Uh, I love this. Uh, I, I love the guy coming in. Like I can just imagine he's got the blazer like with the sleeves rolled up. And my only issue is with the wording of that paragraph because it, it, it suggests that uh, the idea that Oasis or White Stripes could juice ticket sales is outlandish. Not so much that like Pitchfork at trying to make that happen is outlandish. I mean, I know what they mean. I'm just a little... I was a little unnerved by the sentence construction, but I mean, right. So you're saying that (laughs) it's not, it's not outlandish to think that a Oasis reunion would juice sales because it obviously would. Yeah, seriously. (laughs) What's outlandish is that Pitchfork could reunite Oasis, which is obviously, yes, that is outlandish for sure. And the white stripes even more so. I think the white stripes is an even more sort of unlikely reunion than Oasis is. You think? Absolutely. I, I don't think there's any way Meg White ever gets on a stage again. I just think she is happy, hopefully doing what she's doing. And, you know, she had, uh, you know, stage fright issues. And I, I just don't think she would ever do it. Whereas I think, I still think it's inevitable that Noel and Liam get back together. Especially now that Noel's divorced. <laughs> you know, he needs money. You know, it's going to happen. It won't happen at the Pitchfork Festival, but it will happen somewhere. But White Stripes, I don't think will ever happen. Yeah, I think with the if the White Stripes did happen, which they probably won't, I think it would be more for like a one-time Pitchfork Fest type affair, whereas Oasis is going to do Glastonbury. It's going to do, uh, you know, Coachella. Like, 
I mean, I just like that idea of like a con like Conde Nast, the guy, the people who like you know control the finances. This is like it's similar to when you listen to Philadelphia sports radio, how people would call up. It's like, oh uh, yeah, what I think Nick Sirianni needs to do is, uh, I, I think we need to trade for Pat Mahomes and uh, have Jalen Hurts be like just completely out of pocket shit, but like. Conde Nast are, like, the people who have access to the finances. Like, I'm just, like, wondering, like, where, like, whether it's just going to be, like, backdoor diplomacy or just rolling up with a Brinks truck to Meg White's house in uh, Detroit or whatever. Um, yeah, it's not a question of money with her, though. It's yeah. not, because they get, I mean, they they get offered, I'm sure, a ton of money every year, oh, yeah. every year night. I just don't think it's going to happen. I will say, like, Conde Nast... I'll take back every bad thing I said about you if you roll out the check and get Oasis back together. If you're the ones to do it, I'm like, okay, maybe this is where I forgive you guys for everything you've done. So we'll see what happens. Fuck, uh, man. Shoot for, like, the Verve or, like, Stereophonics or, like, Embrace or Athlete. You know, let's remember some... You can't get Oasis, but, like, you can get, like, kind of the, uh, you know, the two, like, ten ones, like, make a ten or something like that, you know? Well, let's get to our mailbag segment. Finally, we haven't done a mailbag in a while. And look, people, please keep writing us. I think we'll probably end up doing an all-mailbag episode next week or, or the week after. Because we're coming into a real dead zone in the year. We, we don't even have sportscasts, really, after uh, this week. So please write us. We're at IndieCastMailbag at gmail.com. We love to hear from you. Uh, anyone who ever says that they love the show, that means a lot to us. Thank you so much for your support. Uh, Ian, you want to read this uh, email? Yes, I do. I, I think this one's very much up my alleys. Hey, Stephen, Ian. I love how the show has evolved. Keep up the great work. It's always a great weekly listen. All right, cool. That was a good oh. mailbag question. Let's move on. Thank you. <laughs> my question. Thank you for the compliments. We left the compliment in this week. We like to hear the compliments yeah. be read out loud. In light of the re- in light of the recent band breakup news, Tokyo Police Club and Hot Hot Heat again. I'm hoping the two of you can give some insight into the business dynamics of band breakups. Like, what is the point of formally, quote, breaking up or going on, quote, hiatus? I feel like it just sort of implied that a band like Moses Campbell, oh, that is so, like, peak remember some guys uh, from The Smell, like, shout out to Michael, anyway, isn't ever going to make another album and they didn't have to announce anything. Does announcing a status change from a business perspective with records, management, companies, etc. move the needle? Do the bands have non-compete equivalent causes for members so it frees up the others to do tour or solo work? I can assume personal relationships, visions, need for real jobs, stomach aches from too much Taco Bell makes bands dissolve. What does breaking up serve any purpose other than maintaining some old, worn-out bastion of rock and roll tradition that implies the natural progression of an aging indie rock band is to burn out and break up? Michael in Sacramento, light the beam. So this is an interesting question because as Michael is, uh, you know, sort of hinting at here, I think it is unusual uh, in modern times to announce a breakup. I think usually bands will use the hiatus word, uh, you know, which suggests that we're not going to be active for a while, but we will at some point in the future, uh, or they just don't say anything. And, you know, we've talked about this with Radiohead as an example that, like, they haven't really worked together in several years, but uh, they've never made an announcement either way. They've never said we're on hiatus or that we're broken up. It's just left open-ended. So it's like, well, maybe they'll make a record next year or maybe they'll make a record in 10 years or maybe they won't make a record at all. Um, The one sort of, like, maybe financial incentive for announcing a breakup, and to be clear, I don't think that most bands are this calculating with it, but... I do think sometimes if you say we broke up, that does allow you in 10 years to do the reunion tour. And then maybe when you do the reunion tour, there's extra sort of urgency on the part of fans to go see you live. Where, whereas like if a band is just hasn't made a record in a while and then they come back, maybe it doesn't seem as sexy mm-hmm. when that happens. So Again, I don't think most bands are that calculating, but I do think saying that like we're done does create a level of maybe sadness in a fan base, and then to come back for the reunion, it just makes it seem a little extra special. Yeah, I think I just I'm just so astonished that Moses Campbell is this person's example 
for uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what is Moses Campbell? I'll, I'll bite. I have no idea what that is. So I mean, like, it, in ter- so they're a band from like the smell, like that scene in Los Angeles, I guess, like late aughts, and. I mean, these guys are so heads only that, like, the May She or Abe Vigoda are basically arcade fire by comparison. Like, this is, like, uh, they went on to make another band. Uh, I think it was called Moaning. They put out a record on Sub Pop. But, um, yeah. Okay, I know that band. Yeah. They, they, I think that they were po- post-Moses Campbell, a, a phrase I never fucking thought I'd say on any cast. But I love the question. But, yeah, I think with... Uh, specific inner band dynamics with breakups or hiatuses. I mean, I do think it kind of, uh, you know, leaves open the possibility of like a 10 year reunion. I think the hotel year is a good example of that, which, you know, they obviously haven't made any new music since goodness in 2016, but, um, that kind of mystical status allows them to do a 10 year tour for uh, home, like no place. And yeah, it just kind of leaves the door open, but, I think the bigger thing I want out of this is that I, for a lot of people, even like IndieCast listeners, they probably think Ho, uh, Hot Hot Heat and Tokyo Police Club are the same band, you know, whereas, I mean, look, Hot Hot Heat, that's dance punk, that's OC, Tokyo Police Club is blog rock. But I do think they could get together like combination Pizza Hut, Taco Bell style or like Tim Tim Hortons, Harvey's or whatever. Well, like Hot Hot Heat. They had a reunion and then they broke up before the reunion, right? They made like, one they, song. They got... <laughs> it was like, but they were going to go on tour, weren't they? Yeah, and then they didn't do the tour. I did the bio for the reunion, and I'd hate to think. Oh man, I'd hate to think that like I got more. Uh, I got more out of the reunion than they did, but uh, I mean, you they... think they read their bio and went, uh, you know what? We don't need to add to this. This is perfect <laughs> as it is. We don't want to ruin this bio by doing a reunion thing, so we'll just end it right now. Yeah, I think with. Those sort of reunions, though, and I, I think this is kind of true for bands of that level where, um, you know, Dante DeCaro, like he was in Wolf Parade for a while and, you know, the one of the other guys was doing like real estate, um, like, you know, the actual job, not the band. Um, and, and people of that level, it's sort of like they build lives and families and perhaps like jobs that can't really be put on hold anymore. They're probably not you know, working at the coffee shop or doing any of those other sort of service jobs where you can be like, hey, I'm going to go on tour for a month. Uh, peace. So, yeah, I think with break, I think breakups more often than not are for the band itself, you know, just to get some like real deal closure on it. Because I, when I talked to Hot Hot Heat, um, you know, they would talk about the offers that would come in and what they turn them down. And it was more just say like, hey, we're not taking offers right now. So I uh, I, I don't feel any certain type of way about it um, as far as like bands choosing to say hiatus or it's more, I think it's more just kind of a selfish sort of thing. And then anything calculated in that, in that event. We've now reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? All right. So this is gonna this Recommendation Corner choice is gonna uh, you know tie together a lot of IndieCast threads. Um, this is from a artist called Bill Ryder Jones. Their album is called Yucky Da. I hope I pronounced that correctly. It's not spelled like that at all, but it's uh, Welsh for cheers. And I believe this is currently the highest album on Metacritic in 2024. Um, it's got a 90 right now. And if you're not familiar with Bill Ryder Jones, you might be familiar with uh, their former band, uh, The Coral, whose self-titled album is one of the uh, prime examples of Best Buy not 699 core from uh, 2002 and 2003. Um, so this came out a few weeks ago. And... He's put out five albums, and this one reminds me of the sort of thing I would check out from an NME review in 2000 that praised it as like a singer-songwriter with orchestral flourishes. We, we loved orchestral flourishes back then. You know, there are kids' choirs, there are strings, and I would, I'm like, oh, this sounds cool. I'd have to check it out, but I'd have to wait six months or find it on Napster because this is back when albums would come out in the UK and then like eight months later in the United States, but... This kind of fits right between, say, I don't know, Badly Drawn Boy and the first Doves record or, you know, Mercury Rev circa All Is Dream. 
Um, uh, it, it, it's it's a very pleasant record, but it's also very out of time. Uh, it just in the sense of having like you know string sections, like kind of a Beach Boys sort of hermetic influence to it. So, um, but people seem to like it. And it's out on Domino, so it's this is not like some obscure thing. But I think this is like a UK only uh, sort of affair. If anything I just said sounds interesting to you, yeah, check it out. All right, so I'm going to talk about two records here. I'm going to cheat a little bit because uh, I think I, I want to give them both a little bit of a boost. The first one is uh, by a band called David Nance and Mode Sound. Mode Sound, I should say. Mode, M-O-W-E-D. Uh, this, and the record is self-titled. And uh, I've been a fan of Nance for about six or seven years. He's a Nebraska singer-songwriter. And I first heard about him because he would do these very unconventional album-length covers of like classic rock records. Like he did a cover of uh, Beatles for Sale. He did a cover of like Lou Reed's Berlin. Uh, he did a record. Uh, he did a cover of the Doug uh, Som Band self-titled record, like with the you know cartoon cover. And the, he did covers, but he they were like radically rearranged, and they were very interesting to listen to. And he's also uh, done a lot of work with. Uh, the uh, Philadelphia singer-songwriter Rosalie, who has a record coming out next month that I'm a big fan of, we'll be talking about then. And uh, he, he, his band is sort of like acted as like her crazy horse, like her backing band. Lots of gnarly, thorny guitar jams backing up this like beautiful voice. And he's like a really great singer-songwriter too. And he like really leans into that like kind of ditch era Neil Young type sound, like late nights evoking like a 3 a.m. type vibe loose arrangements sounds really cool a lot of atmosphere so his record's really cool i also want to talk about this band from toronto called ducks limited and it's spelled ducks ltd i believe it's pronounced ducks limited if i'm incorrect i'm sorry sorry to the ducks but this band look they are a classic flying nun new zealand guitar pop type band and if you know what that is you will love this band it's very jangly guitars very sort of zippy rhythms uh kind of like a melancholy vibe permeating throughout the songs but look a lot of bands do this kind of thing and ducks limited they're not reinventing the wheel by any means but they are really good at it they execute that type of music extremely well and uh this is the kind of record you know we're in the middle of winter, but it's like unseasonably warm, so it kind of feels like spring. And this is like a really good springtime type record. So again, it's called Harm's Way. The band is Ducks Limited. And of course, David Nance, that self-titled record, that's out today as well. They're both really good. Check them out. I think back in the day, there was a band called Ambulance LTD, and I think it was Ambulance Limited. So I'm going to go with that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, look. Bands, put in parentheses if we have to say this out loud or if you just want us to do the LTD. We don't know this for a fact, but yeah, I think it's Ducks Limited. Anyway, thank you for listening to this episode of IndieCast. We'll be back with more news, reviews, and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box.